And not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a role in the FBI. In this world, you look out for number one. If you, if any people, take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling. So we want to welcome uh, into the OG podcast, uh, Harry Boris. Um, Harry was a club owner in Boston. He owned the legendary Channel Rock Club uh, in South Boston. It's a club that was very prominent throughout the 1980s, and it was synonymous with the city of Boston's rock and roll scene in a way that, you know, in New York, you had CBGBs. In L.A., you had, you know, the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Troubadour, the Roxy. Well, in Boston, you had the Channel. And we're here with uh, Harry Boris to talk a little bit about uh, his time as, as owner of the Channel and then his run-ins with some uh, uh, Massachusetts uh, uh, mafia figures. So, uh, Harry, thanks a lot for joining us. Okay, how you doing? Good, man. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on the OG with us. How prevalent was uh, the mafia or the what they call in Boston the patriarchal crime family? Um, you know, was it something you were aware of as a young kid growing up in Jamaica Plains, or was it wasn't uh, until you became an adult where you kind of were aware of their of their presence? Well, no, everybody knew the Anjulo family, and they owned a lot of. Uh, buildings, and uh, everybody kind of talked about the Andulo brothers, and they were uh, uh, branches of the Patriarca family in Providence. You know, Pat- Raymond Patriarca was uh, supposedly the head of the underworld, and everybody knew who he was. He was in the news often. You know, he was kind of like accepted as the godfather, but for some reason they never really, you know, uh, got him. The same with the Anjulos, and they were, uh, it was an open secret in Boston that the Anjulos ran the crime uh, scene in Boston as far as I can remember, early 60s. And, uh, you know, finally they, they were taken down thanks to wiretaps that, uh, you know, Whitey Bulger and John Connolly had arranged. But for the most part, the, the, the Anjulos reigned in Boston and everybody knew about it. I mean, my father worked in the restaurant business and he used to talk about the Anjulos coming in and, you know, being VIPs and everything. So it was very much known. I mean, Whitey was a little bit different. Whitey was... I think, uh, in, at least at the beginning, he was a little under the radar. You know, he was very well known in South Boston. You know, there was a, a mythology that he kept South Boston clean from drugs and stuff like that. But, but well, that couldn't be further from the truth. We all know now, you know, 30 years later, that he was actually flooding the streets of, of South Boston with drugs. And, and people in the city knew that. You know, they knew that he was. But, you know, it's like South Boston, you know, unlike J.P., where I grew up, which is Jamaica Plain, was very white and mostly Irish, and uh, you know, you didn't really see much diversity there. The city was very insular and very uh, closed. You know, the town it was it wasn't a city; it's a neighborhood. Uh, it was, you know, quite a difference from where I grew up. But I, but I had no problem get, going into South Boston, and uh, we used to go to the parade every year. Whitey was a known figure; we'd seen him. You know, he walked uh, along. South Boston there by the viaduct where the uh, uh, ships come in, and he walked along there. I, I used to walk in the same place. I'd see him once in a while, and he always kind of, you know, nodded hello. So he wasn't, like, uh, invisible at all. So kind of talk about how you got into the uh, nightclub business and wanting to create a music venue uh, that you that you ended up creating in the channel, which, you know, obviously became pretty iconic. But how did you uh, how did you get into the business, and then how did you conceive the idea of, of the channel? I was in the food and beverage business. I owned a couple of restaurants. Um, 
you know, one successful, one not so much. I worked as a manager in different places. So I got a job as a manager in a, in a big Boston disco called Jason's. I, you know, I, I worked there in the restaurant, not the disco, for a while. And uh, I saw the nightclub business. I liked it, but I hated the whole scene. I hated the disco. I hated the cocaine, the limousines. You know, a lot of mobsters used to come in. I really liked the nightclub business because I saw an opportunity to make a good, uh, you know, a good sum of money without having to do a lot of heavy lifting. But I hated disco. I hated the superficial music. I hated the people. I, I hated the cocaine culture. And, you know, when I left there, I was on the lookout for either a job or an opportunity to, to you know, I saw a lot of Boston music, a lot of uh, very up-and-coming uh, music you know, uh, that really had very little places to play. There was a couple of small clubs. Uh, it's just like there was so much talent, you know, besides the big guys, you know, Aerosmith and Boston and Cars and Jay Giles and everything else. There was, you know, dozens, hundreds, actually, of local bands that were really good. And I saw that they had no place to play. The Paradise was the only place that gave them a chance and the shows were, it was more like a theater setting than a nightclub setting. I just thought that there was a, a need for uh, something that was a little bit more earthy, a little more raw, a little bit more in-your-face rock and roll. And I went in there and I was able to kind of, you know, along with a couple of friends, was able to buy, um, you know, a, a share in it. It was it was tough to go to, to 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 begin with because it was in South Boston. In South Boston, you know, our, our guiding principles was diversity, uh, meaning that we were trying to get all kinds of music, you know, uh, you know everything from uh, rock to blues to rap to punk to everything. Reggae? And Can you have some reggae bands through there? Um, a lot of reggae bands: Steel Pulse, The Wailers, Jimmy Cliff. Um, UB40, dozens, Mutu Baruka, Yellow Man. Would, would you say that most of your audience members were coming from outside of Southie as a result, or was it a mix? We were in Southie, but we were on the fringes of Southie. I we see. Were just, you know, we were right over the bridge, and, they were, it, you know, they called it the Ford Point neighborhood, but it wasn't much of a neighborhood. So most of our, 95% of our audience came from the city. What were some of the uh, uh, rock bands punk rock bands that were coming up at that time that would play the channel? Well, there was a couple of bands in Boston, like Gang Green. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember them. Yeah, you know, so there's Huskadu, Sonic sure. Youth, Buzzcocks, uh, Dead Kennedys, which we had advertised wow. DKs because yeah. they were offensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, what, what kind of guy was Jello from DK, from Dead Kennedys? He was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense from what I know. <laughs> yeah, he was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. They're, they're, they're all characters. They have to be. You know, they, they have to have a big ego, and and they're all characters. After a while, you kind of you know get immune to them. You just kind of like roll your eyes back and just kind of deal with them. You know. <laughs> sure. Were, were there any uh, particular uh, heavy metal groups that come to mind during that same era that you were giving, uh, you know, well, an yeah, opportunity heavy, to? Heavy metal. We. You know, we did Metallica, Motorhead, Pantera, Wow, um, uh, Winger. There was a lot. I mean, Extreme, which which wasn't really a metal band, but they actually became big. They started off being kind of like a metal band. Sure. Um, Even though they were kind know, of more known by the mainstream for ballads. That, that's right. That's how, right. <laughs> yeah. Later on, that's yeah. what they became known for, right? I, I guess, you know, metal was kind of the thing that we were... We were uh, 
recognized uh, by UHF as one of the great clubs in the world. But, you know, metal was a small part of our uh, repertoire. I mean, we did everything. Yeah, what about, what about the kind of the, the glam scene of the 1980s? Uh, you know, the, the, what I guess you could call like uh, uh, hair, hair rock with uh, yeah. the Motley Crues yeah. and the yeah. uh, Poisons. Did you have any of those guys come through? I had a couple of those guys. I don't even remember what they were called, but they did very well. But I can't, I can't even remember what they were called, but the hair bands, you know? Did um, some of the more national, nationally known acts, did they start hanging out at the channel, even though they weren't performing there necessarily? Oh, yeah. We had, you know, we, we used to have people hanging out there all the time. Uh, there were, you know, the, the, the uh, Boston uh, uh, so-called uh, big stars like, uh, you know, Tyler. And, I mean, Perry used to play there wow. the channel when, when, when uh, Aerosmith had broken up. Oh, right. You and the Joe Perry project. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and, and with Cali Farron. So he used to, you know, we used to actually hire, we hired his ex-wife Alyssa as a wait as a cocktail waitress. Wow, and and she was uh, a, a famous uh, lady of rock and roll. <laughs> they wrote the song "Polite," uh, <laughs> a sweet emotion about her. Right. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's Alyssa, great. Very famous <laughs> rock and yeah, roll life. Yeah. <laughs> Alyssa, Alyssa used to work at the club, and my brother used to be the manager, and he, and he used to fire her about once a week. <laughs> and she'd always come to me, and she'd tell me, Adrian really needs food, your brother just fired me. <laughs> you know, he, he, he used to fire her because she was a terrible waitress, and, <laughs> and I would always hire her back. That's so a great a little, story. Uh, we had a little history, me and Alyssa, you know? But we used to, you know, everybody, you know, Joe Strummer came in when the Clash was playing sure. in town. Jimmy Page came in one time, and he actually we actually had to give him a bomber jacket and a channel jacket because he asked for it. Wow! But my daughter, my daughter was running the concession stand at the time. She says, "That's Jimmy Page. You can pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> He's got enough money. That's great. Jacket. That's <laughs> true. He wins that. You know, it's okay. <laughs> but you know, they all hang on. They look okay, sick, and you know, uh, Peter Wolf, and you know. They, they, they all came in because they used to kind of shop local bands. A lot of the local bands. I mean, we, our bread and butter was local bands to begin with, and then you know, and we we had a lot of resistance from the local big promoter, you know. So so we had to struggle to get uh, national acts. Sometimes we had to overpay. Sometimes we had to overpromise, and a lot of times uh, we had to fight a little bit, including in court sometimes. So it was a struggle. I mean, we had one incident, which I'll tell you very quickly. In, the, in 1982, we were really struggling to get national acts. You know, sometimes we wouldn't even get a veil. But we, we found uh, somebody that was talking to us about the B-52s, right? They said, yeah, you want the B-52s? Yeah. So, okay, it's going to cost you $20,000. This is an 82 now, and twenty grand was a lot of money. And, uh, you know, we have a date on the, I think it was a Wednesday night, a week from this Wednesday, so a week later. One stipulation, you can't advertise the show. Take it or leave it. <laughs> So, so the, so the agency take it or leave it. You got to come up with ten thousand dollars today. Wire wire to the agency, and and if we, and if we, and if uh, the, the, if the if we advertise it in print or radio, shows the show's going to be canceled. We're going to cancel our. We're going to uh, forfeit our deposit. So we put the show on sale. We couldn't advertise it. We asked Mark Parenta from WBCN to kind of just mention it in the afternoon. He did. We sold out, made made ten grand on the deal. Did Mark Parento hang out at the club a lot? Yeah, not only he hung out there, but he used to kind of MC shows once in a while too. Now, if a Steven Tyler or Joe Perry walks into the club or Jimmy Page, even 
I mean, do they come in alone? Do they come in with an entourage? Do they come in with several, like, bodyguard, big guys? Like, who, who's looking out for them? Steven Tyler used to come in with a couple of guys, a couple of big guys. Okay, but they would pay into the background, but you knew they were with him. Jimmy Page, as far as I, as far as I know, came in with a couple of guys, but he was pretty much kind of trying, you know, he was kind of under the radar. He didn't really want to be recognized too much. And somebody had to tell us that that was him. I didn't know. I, you know, I, I didn't even notice him. Uh, so most of them did not come in with an entourage. So, you know, they, they they pretty much came in kind of like, you know, and we didn't really make a big deal out of them. We had, you know, we didn't have bouncers. We had security people. We didn't really, you know, try to intimidate people. And anything. For the most part, everybody was left alone. As synonymous as the channel uh, Rock Club was with South Boston is as synonymous as Whitey Bulger was with that neighborhood. Um, can you kind of talk about your, you know, the first time you ever heard the name uh, Whitey Bulger? Whitey Bulger was kind of in the news ever since the Winter Hill Gang, you know, with Howie Winter and Somerville and everything. And he was kind of like considered, you know, he had been in jail. I mean, I think he was in Alcatraz when mm-hmm. he was younger. So, you know, and then of course his brother was an up-and-coming politician. He ended up becoming Senate president and then uh, the president of UMass Boston. Actually, I think the whole UMass system. Uh, you know, he had a, a plum job, you know, that uh, Mitt Romney uh, kind of fired him from. So everybody knew Whitey. Whitey was Whitey. I mean, everybody knew he was a wise guy. Everybody knew he had served time in jail. He was coming back, and he was he was working with uh, Howie Winter at Winter Hill. And he kind of asserted himself in South Boston. And, uh, you know, when I first went into the channel, the first one of the first encounters I had was with uh, a bunch of uh, South Boston toughs who threw his name around, you know, and said, you know, that, oh, you better hire us to take you, to help you take care of things, or Whitey's going to, you know. But, but I, I knew better. I, I knew that if Whitey wanted to send any kind of a message, he would have done it himself. You know, so we, we would never, I mean, for, you know, I don't know why Whitey never removed it on us. I mean, I asked the guy that I was working with, the FBI, you know, why, and uh, he really couldn't tell me, even if he could. I don't think he would. Hey, just to clarify you know, I, for, for the listeners, so Whitey never tried to extort your club, despite the fact that he was extorting anyone and everyone he could, uh, business-wise, uh, drug dealer-wise, criminal-wise, legitimate business-wise, in South Boston. But for some reason, you were able to avoid that. Whitey never tried to extort the club. I couldn't. I wouldn't say that he was extorting all the businesses. I mean, South Boston is a pretty big place, and he, you know, he did, you know, drive a guy. You know, there was a liquor store he wanted, so he just kind of forced the guy out. And uh, you know, a few other. Yeah, he used to, you know, get a cut on drug deals and everything else. But I'm not. I don't know that he had an influence in every business in South Boston, or even most businesses. He never bought us. I mean, you know, I, I heard his name three or four times. I actually used to see him on Castle Island, where there's a place where you can walk, and just you know, you just kind of nod and you just nod. You know, it, it, it's not like he was ever in, in, an intimidating figure, even though we used to hear that he was, uh, you know, that he was a bad guy. We just figured, you know, hey, we stay out of their way, they stay out of our way, you know. And then, I, and then I thought, you know, at, at, at some point, this other Boston mobster uh, uh, tried to make a move on the channel in the, in the mid-'80s, and we basically pretty much, you know, fended him off. And that was Vinny the Animal Ferrara, correct? Yeah. And then, I, and then so I thought, you know, in retrospect, that maybe because, the, the, because Ferrara was with the Angelos, right? And yeah, Vinnie Ferrar was a, a protege of Jerry Angelo in uh, uh, yeah. an East Boston gangster by the name of J.R. Russo. Yeah, and and I, that's why I thought maybe maybe 
that may have been a reason why Whitey, because uh, Whitey at the time was spying on the Angelos, I think, and maybe the FBI told him to, to, to stay away because this might have been, you know, I, I, don't, I really don't know. And, and I, I actually was going to, the day before Whitey died, you know, we were trying to get a hold of his attorney to see if he agreed to either answer an email or talk to us. You know, but, you know it didn't work out, obviously. Talk I was going to ask him. He was 89 years old. I figured he might tell me why. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the end, uh, when you kind of decided at the end of the 80s to get out of the business and, and you started the negotiations to sell it uh, to a local uh, businessman, attorney, real estate developer, mob associate named Stevie DeSaro. You know, in the late 80s, early 90s, I, start, you know, I, I just got sick of selling alcohol. I just wanted to be in the entertainment business. And, and I didn't want to sell booze. And I thought I could do it, and I wanted to do it. So I, so I decided I just wanted to sell my, my share of the club. And, and my brother decided he wanted to sell, too. And so we owed two-thirds of it, and we decided we'd sell two-thirds to, to the, the other partner, and, uh, plus the sorrow. And our lawyer at the time you know, was uh, going to be part of the group. It was going to be like the legal for small share. So basically, the sorrow brought in a... Uh, you know, a guy that supposedly had a lot of money, and, and I kind of checked him out, and he did. He was an electrical contractor from Providence. And, and that was Frank you know, Zamiello, right? Yeah. Who was and, a mob and, associate in, in, uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. But, I mean, I kind of, I, you know, I found out that he was a, a, a legitimate electrical contractor. Marulo, you know, who's our lawyer, said, hey, he's good for it, and he's going to give me a check. And I said, fine. And uh, so, basically, my, you know, we, on you know, on Marulo's and DeSaro's uh, advice, we filed Chapter 11 because we owed some taxes and we had some slip and falls that we had to deal with. And um, we filed Chapter 11, and, you know, based on the fact that I thought we had, you know, a escrow money to buy the club, I let DeSaro pretty much run the place because my brother was kind of like through with being the night manager. He didn't want to do it. So I said, fine, you and run the place. Did you realize and at this time, well, I'm sorry to interject, but did you realize at this time that Stevie DeSaro had a silent partner behind him in addition to Frank Zamiello named Cadillac Frank Salemi, who at that point had replaced the Angelos as the mob boss of not just Boston, but of all of New England. And they were, they were silent partners with DeSaro. Did you know that? No. I, as a matter of fact, after, after you know, we kind of made a deal with him and, and he started you know, coming into the club and running the club and transitioning, he brought in Frank Jr. And he, and he introduced him. He said, here's my money guy. Okay. So I said, who's this? So I knew kind of I had heard the name Frank Salemi, Cadillac Frank. And DeSaro says, hey, his father's a mobster, but that's okay. But, you know, Bulger's brother is a, you know, is a senator, so it's not like you can't condemn him because his father's a mobster. So I said, look, as long as the money's good and the, the deal is good, I don't give a shit who your partner is. You want to you wanna do business with this guy? It's fine. I have no problem with that. And, uh, you know, I ne- to tell you the truth, in all the, in all the time I was there, I never met a senior. Never met Cadillac Frank. You met Frankie Boy, who was his son. Frankie Boy, I had a I had an encounter with him. You know, he basically challenged me to a gunfight. And, and Frankie Frankie was a, a loose cannon. It was a real wild card. And he was a crazy person. Him and him and Wider came in one night, 
And I was, you know, and, he, and he's like uh, throwing his weight around and everything else. And I asked him to just uh, leave. And he basically challenged me to a gunfight. And I said, look, I fight with lawyers, not with uh, guns. I said, I don't do guns. I don't own one. I don't know how to use one. I said, I don't fight with guns. I fight with lawyers. I said, call your lawyer. I'll call mine. That's what I did. You know, so I thought, you know, at, at the time, at that time, I kind of figured out that this kid was a, was a, was a crazy person. Uh, you know, and, and then, you know, slowly things fell apart. Did, did did Frankie Boy's behavior, though, the way that he was throwing his weight around, in in lieu of the fact that you thought Stevie DeSaro was really the was the uh, in the driver's seat, by Frank Jr. trying to assert himself more, did that kind of give you an inkling, or was that a red flag that things were kind of going off the rails in terms of uh, of the sale? Yeah, of course, things were going. I thought things were going off the rail, and and I think that uh, you know uh, my lawyer was intimidated or you know threatened or whatever. And uh, and Desaro was just uh, Desaro was always you know he's always kind of trying to make a deal here or deal there or talk just kind of he was he was just a very uh, he was a very nervous person you know he used to get you know and and one of the reasons why I think they were suspicious of him is because he used to kind of like you know do the whisper and the, you know off to the side uh, conversations and stuff like that you know he was always scurrying around, you know, trying to be, try, you know, acting suspiciously, you know. What would you, what would you have said in, you know, so you started negotiating to sell the club, what, in 1990? Yeah, 90, yeah, probably 90, 91, yeah, probably the end of 90. What would you have estimated that the, the true value of the club was at that point? You know, our deal was, you know, for, you know, 200,000, you know, the value of the club was kind of uh, tenuous because we had a, we didn't own that property, it was a lease. It was owned by Boston Wharf, and Boston Wharf was a very big development company in Boston, and uh, they were not uh, willing to give. I mean, we were there for for eleven years, and I think it was eight different leases because they were only giving you a two-year lease at a time. So the value of the club was was limited by the fact that we didn't have a lease, and very few locations could match that, you know, at the time because. You know, there was other big clubs in Kemble Square and, and, and other places where, you know, there was no parking, no access, and, you know, they, that place had everything. You know, no neighbors to complain for loud music and traffic, no, there was just a lot going for it. The club itself was worth at least a quarter of a million dollars. Oh, at least, yeah. It was worth And we're going to get more than that just for our two-thirds. Okay, so then let's tell the listeners, what did DeSaro and the Salemis ended up getting the club for? What was the number? According, you know, and this is something that I just, I learned uh, recently at the trial, uh, they, they ended up buying the assets of the club on the, uh, in, in auction for $51,000. To give a little primer for what happened uh, after the club changed hands to, to the listeners that aren't aware, that uh, Stevie DeSaro and the Slemmies took over the club uh, from Harry and his partners, and pretty quickly thereafter, they had to uh, shut down uh, the channel as a rock club, and they eventually um, regenerated the business as a strip club, but uh, they were losing money pretty fast, and by the spring of 1993, the FBI and the IRS began sniffing around and looking at DeSaro and Salemi for uh, using the club to launder illegal proceeds. The Salemis believed that uh, Stevie DeSaro was going to cooperate, so they killed Stevie DeSaro in May of 1993. Fast forward to 2016, and the FBI digs up Stevie DeSaro's body in Providence, 
and Frank Salemi Sr., Cadillac Frank, goes on trial uh, for that murder in the summer of 2018, and Harry had to testify uh, at that trial. No, I did not. Oh, Harry, you did not testify. I did not. Your I brother testified. List. I had a subpoena. I had to be in court, but they didn't end up calling me. Okay. They called my brother, but they did not call me. And then there was a, a, a little incident outside your brother's pizzeria in the days leading up to his testimony when a, a car was set on fire. Uh, it seemed like it could have been an intimidation tactic. We thought so. You know, it was, it was the day after uh, Peter had uh, been interviewed by the prosecutor and the FBI agent for the second time and uh, it, uh, at the Cohasset police station. And uh, the next day, so he, 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 uh, that was done on an afternoon, I think Friday afternoon, and that Friday morning, that the next Saturday morning, like at 2 or 3 a.m., uh, two, two, three cars actually went up in flames right outside his store, which is right down the street from my house. So we thought, you know, Salemi's uh, history was kind of like car bombs and stuff like that, and we just thought maybe, you know, there, there might have been a connection. But the FBI pretty much said it was, they thought it was a coincidence. So the trial uh, garnered a lot of headlines, not just in Boston, but, but nationwide. Eventually, uh, Cadillac Frank was found guilty. He was sentenced to uh, life in prison. And right. uh, you're kind of, you're out there now trying to tell your story. Tell your story about the, about the channel, about uh, your experience uh, working in the music business in Boston in the 1980s, your, your experience dealing with uh, the Salemis uh, with, the, with the sale of the club. Kind of tell the uh, listeners about uh, what you got going on with uh, an upcoming podcast that you're putting together. Yeah, we're putting a podcast together called Boston Venue, and it's going to tell the, you know, the, pretty much the true and complete uh, story of the channel, uh, you know, with some, uh, you know, some looks on the inside, you know, just the way that I saw and I experienced it. We'll be putting up a, um, a teaser soon, probably this week, and then we'll probably have our first episode in about two weeks after that, and then we're going to try to put one out every two weeks, and it'll be, it's called Boston Venue, The Channel Story. And uh, there's also we, can, we also have a a website called thechannelstory.com, which uh, explains kind of the you know the story behind the story, how the podcast is coming together, who the people involved are. You know, I'm trying to get people involved that were there. You know, especially music performers that were on stage and saw things. They experienced it firsthand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we want to we want to get bring people back there and just have the real experience. You know, the channel was an emotional experience. We want we want to kind of try to reproduce that if we can. Harry, this was awesome, man. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you very much, Harry. Good luck with the podcast. Okay, thank you.